Again, our passage is Romans 12, uh, verses 9 through 13. If you'd look at that with me, please. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. This is the word of our Lord. This is one of those passages where I am going to state the obvious, and that is that you ought to have this passage open on your lap before you as I preach, because there are some technical elements to this passage that I think are very important to understanding this passage. So your Bibles should be open in front of you, and we're going to spend some time looking at the structure of this passage Now, uh, technically speaking, there's actually no command verb in this passage. That is, there isn't a verb in which uh, Paul is sternly commanding. Now, there is in verse 14, but not here in 9 through 13. So there's no command verb in this passage, but what Paul is doing is he's describing here the natural outflowing of the converted life. That is, a person has been converted by God's grace... And here he is describing the kinds of virtues that pour out of that heart that has been converted by God's grace. Very often, uh, we don't find in our hearts the things that Paul is going to describe. However, Paul says that uh, these things in our hearts are there by God's grace and ought to, by God's grace, be expressed publicly. Now, real uh, quickly, Paul has already called us to present to God everything that we have and everything that we are. Our whole bodies, Paul has said, we are to present to God as living sacrifices. Now, this is the context of Romans 12 through 15. The entire end of Romans is within this context of presenting our bodies as living sacrifices before God. Now, this presentation of our bodies as living sacrifices cannot happen apart from God's grace. And so you can see there in verse 3 of Romans 12, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone. See, Paul believes that Christians are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, Romans 3. But Paul doesn't stop there. We're not merely converted by God's grace, we actually are sanctified by his grace and and called to behave as Christians by that same grace. As Christians, even even those who have been Christians for a long time, we often think about our conversion uh, almost as if uh, kick-starting a motorcycle. Have you ever kick-started a motorcycle? I actually never have, but I know what it means. I'm sure you know what it means. You're getting the motorcycle to start almost like you're, well, almost like it is the same thing as turning the key in your car and the starter spins to get the engine going. But once the engine's going, there's no need to continue kick-starting the motorcycle. There's no need to continue turning the key in a car. And oftentimes, well-meaning Christians will think about their life in Christ as requiring a converting grace, but then nothing else. That is, God has converted me. 
as the starter to this uh, new creation, this new life, but then it's my job to keep this life running. Well, that's not what Paul believes. He believes that we are converted by God's grace, but he also believes that God's grace continues in the Christian life. In Romans chapter 5, he says that Christians have regular access to God because why? Because they stand in his grace. And he says also in Romans 5 that that grace of God abounds more and more in the Christian life. And he says also in Romans 5 that grace reigns in our lives. This is a continual reality of being a Christian person. At the very end of his letter, he's going to say that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It's an assertion of what every Christian person has. The day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, second by second, grace of God. It is always with us. I read to you the conclusion in Romans 16.20. So it's grace that enables us to present our lives before God as living sacrifices. Last week, we found that God's grace also equips us with various gifts that we might uh, serve the church body, uh, aid the church body. This week, God's grace will uh, help us present our lives to him in our general, uh, generally speaking, ordinary circumstances of the Christian life. I think that's what this passage is addressing this morning. And then next week, we'll see uh, how it is that God's grace helps us present our lives to him in more extraordinary circumstances, not merely the ordinary circumstances of the Christian life, but those times when the Christian is facing heated persecution. That's what we'll look at next week. Now, as I said, this is a sermon that will require a lot of checking your Bible. In this passage, each verse begins a new sentence in the Greek. Look at it there. Each verse actually begins a brand new Greek sentence. So you can ignore all other punctuation. Each verse begins a Greek sentence. That doesn't always happen in English translations. Verse 11, then, of the five verses, is the very middle sentence. And I believe it's here in verse 11 in which we find the main idea of the passage. That God's grace enables us to present our lives to God not slothfully, but with zeal. Everything in this passage is then describing how God's grace helps us as Christians to present our lives before him, not with slothfulness, but with zeal. And then we can back off of that central verse, verse 11, and we can ask this question, what, Paul, does this zeal look like? And part of that answer is in verses 9 through 10, just above. And part of the answer is in verses 12 through 13, just below. And in verses 9 and 10, Paul talks about this zeal present internally in the Christian life that then uh, turns into an external expression of the Christian life. That's verses 9 and 10. 9 being mostly internal, and then 10 an external show of God's grace as we present our lives before him. The same thing happens in 11 and 12. Paul begins in verse 11 by talking about the the zeal of the Christian life internally, and then that zeal as it spins externally in verse 12. Now, it's important for you to see that in this passage, because I want to begin this sermon with verse 11, presenting our lives with zeal. 
And then the next main point of this sermon will be verses 9 through 10, the, that genuine love that is shown in brotherly affection. Genuine love that's shown in brotherly affection. And then we'll finish by looking at verses 12 through 13. Hope, or rejoicing in hope, that is shown in meeting the needs of others. So presenting our lives with zeal, right in the middle, and then just above the middle, genuine love shown in brotherly affection, and then at the very bottom of the middle, hope that's shown in meeting the needs of others. Is that, is that muddy, or is that clear? I hope that that's clear. Because what this passage is showing us is that God's grace actually enables us to present our lives to God, not slothfully, but with zeal. God's grace enables the Christian to present his or her life before God, not slothfully, but with zeal. Well, let's dive right in, presenting our lives with zeal. Paul says in verse 11, Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. And in the Greek, the very first word of this sentence, uh, and clearly what we ought to be noticing, is zeal. But this phrase, do not be slothful in zeal. I want you to think about that. Paul is being deliberately redundant. He's saying something that doesn't need to be said. He could either say, don't be slothful, or he could say, be zealous. He need not say both. The Greek word for zeal, it literally means quickly, quickly. So what Paul seems to be saying is, be very quick without an ounce of slothfulness. Be very quick without an ounce of slothfulness. You've told me too much, Paul. You've seen a sloth. Remove all slothfulness from your quickness. Of course slothfulness is removed from my quickness. Now, that's redundant. But dwell on that just a bit. Sometimes when we think of hurriedness, we think of sloppiness. When we think of something that is done hurriedly, we think of something that has been done half-fast. But this zeal is not that kind of hurriedness, the kind of zeal that Paul's talking about. It's hurried because it's purposeful. And it's never done sloppily. Paul's being very clear that he is meaning a certain kind of zeal. It's done very quick. But it's never sloppy. And Paul qualifies what he means by zeal. You know, every uh, generation uh, knows zealous individuals who give their lives to a cause. And in fact, they give uh, everything about themselves to this cause. Think about that for a moment. These are the movers and shakers around us who we know work tirelessly, sleep very little, give everything that they have and that they are in the pursuit of a goal. Every age has, it would seem, a Cornelius Vanderbilt or a Jeff Bezos. Just think about someone who gives everything that they have all of the time. But the kind of zeal that Paul's talking about is a zeal in a certain direction, a zeal that he says serves the Lord. You see that in the passage. A zeal that serves the Lord. The word for serve is that of a servant to a master. It's, it's that of an employee. That by grace, a Christian is united to Christ so that, as Paul says in Romans 7, we have died to the condemnation of the law so that we now serve God in the new way of the Holy Spirit. We, as Christians, belong 
to God. He is our master. And the zeal that Paul is talking about here is a zeal that is in a very specific direction. It's service to the one who owns us. We belong to God, and this is service to God alone. And Paul gives us one more phrase, doesn't he, to describe what is meant by this zeal. This person with zeal, Paul says, belongs to the Lord and serves him, but he is known because he is fervent in spirit. In his or her inner self, inner life, there is not just living, there is the kind of life that is boiling over, bubbling over, a foaming kind of life, an agitated kind of life, seething inside of them so alive they are. Now, it's very likely that Paul coins this phrase, fervent in spirit. It's not found anywhere else outside of the Bible. And it's only found twice in the Bible. And the other person who uses it, Luke, likely heard this phrase from Paul. And when Paul says fervent in spirit, he is denoting a zeal that has deep roots in a converted life. When we are converted, we are made a new creation. God has done something amazing inside of us through his Holy Spirit. That's what we believe conversion is. And Paul says that a person who is zealous is a person who is fervent in spirit to describe the kind of person who has had something dramatically changed inside of them. We tend to only think of fervent Christianity in terms of extraordinary ministries, we run into this word uh, fervent in spirit, and the word fervent in particular. And we think, well, this is a dynamic kind of Christianity. Uh, this is the kind of Christianity that's not the, the normal church-going Christianity. This is the kind of Christianity that is colored with extraordinary ministry, like evangelism, not just to uh, an average person, but of evangelism uh, to those who are especially uh, difficult and reticent to receive the gospel evangelism to difficult people. We think of uh, fervent Christians as Christians who are doing missions uh, not in easy places, but missions in very difficult places where their proclamation of the gospel may very much end in their death. Or we think of fervent people as people who are not merely uh, generous, who don't merely uh, share their resources. They do so uh, in a radical way. Now, it may be that that's what, that's what Paul means when he says fervent in spirit. But it may be that's just only one kind of fervency of spirit. A kind of fervency that is shown uh, in very dramatic ways. But even what Paul says about being fervent in spirit, e- even that fervency, it needs to be able to include the kind of life that is ordinary Christian life. You see, just above verse 11, Paul describes zeal as a genuine love that extends itself in terms of brotherly affection. A genuine love that spreads out into brotherly affection. And then just below our passage, he describes zeal as rejoicing in hope that turns into meeting the needs of others in the church. Now, I don't mind saying to you that that sounds rather common. 
not evangelism in dangerous parts of the world, but a brotherly affection that sounds, that sounds sweet and simple and almost common. And the same goes with regards to uh, sharing in the needs of others. It sounds sweet and simple and almost, well, almost common. And yet we have to understand that uh, these are ways of showing that we are fervent in spirit. These are quiet examples of fervency, but fervent uh, nonetheless. This is zeal. Zeal's all over this passage. We just need to correct our understanding of what is meant by zeal. And by the way, I don't want to move on from verse 11 uh, too quickly. Uh, I certainly want to say this, that there is one explicit example of being uh, fervent in spirit in the Christian life. I I mentioned earlier that Luke uses this phrase, and he does so in Acts chapter 18. And there he introduces us to a man by the name of Apollos. And Apollos was a Jew from Alexandria who may have been in Judea when John the Baptist was ministering. We don't know when exactly Apollos became a Christian, but he preached at Ephesus and he preached at Corinth and later he preached at Crete with Titus. He was very respected by Paul who said about the Corinthian church, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. That's Apollos, 1 Corinthians 3. And Apollos was known as a very eloquent speaker, to be sure. He also was known as someone who was comfortable refuting Jews. He himself uh, was a Jew. But when you look at Acts chapter 18, we're told some very interesting things about Apollos indeed. What made people think of him as fervent in spirit? The phrase is in Acts 18, verse 25. Well, wouldn't you like to know that? What was it about him that made people think of him as fervent in spirit? Now, certainly he was eloquent, and certainly he spoke in difficult circumstances, but that's not what Paul or what Luke uh, uses to describe this fervency of spirit in the life of Apollos. We read in Acts 18.25 that he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. And just a few verses earlier than that, we're told that he was competent in the Scriptures. And then uh, towards the end of the section in Acts 18 about Apollos, we're told that he was able to show by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Three references to a specific skill that Apollos had, one who is fervent in spirit, has to be someone who knows God's word. Knows not only what God says about himself and his word, but what God says about the world. And what God says about Apollos and what God says about you and me. That's certainly what God says about his Christ, our Redeemer. Apollos, the only other man in Scripture who is called fervent in spirit, is a man who knew God's word well. In fact, Apollos was so famous in the history of the church for his knowledge of the Bible that Martin Luther and other reformers suspect that perhaps this is the mysterious author of Hebrews. None other than Apollos. Of course, it's inconclusive who the author of Hebrews is. But I want us to know that Apollos was a man who is fervent in spirit. But what we want to hear from Luke over and over again is Luke says that he is a man who knew God's word. Now, for me, this casts a slightly different light on what it looks like to be not slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Zeal in the direction of serving the Lord, that is, fervent zeal, it may be very, very loud, a noisy zeal. 
but it may also be rather quiet. It's certainly a zeal in the direction of serving God. But it also includes, must include, knowing who Christ is as he's revealed in Scripture. And this also means that as I know who Christ is as he's revealed in Scripture, it means that I know who I am as a Christian person who has received eternal life by God's grace. Hmm. You see, this zeal also means that, I, that what I know about Christ and myself, it ought to quickly turn to some sort of action, indeed specific actions. For Apollos, what he knew about God and about Christ and about himself, it, it was uh, converted, as it were, uh, translated, as it were, into public speaking. He was an eloquent man. But don't forget where we've been in this passage. Just last week, Paul has described that there are four serving gifts that accompany the three speaking gifts. You remember that from last week. There are actually more serving gifts that are announced by Paul than there are speaking gifts. And we ought to correct ourselves when we think that zeal can only be expressed in speaking. It can also be expressed in serving You should read Acts 18 this afternoon. You you can also notice there that in Acts 18, uh, Apollos is called someone who helped the church. He was a helper of the church as well as he was a speaker to the church. But remember where we are. God's grace actually enables us to present our lives to God, not slothfully, but with zeal. But let's now turn and see the illustrations that Paul gives us for this kind of fervency in spirit, this kind of Christian zeal. And in verses 9 and 10, he talks about a genuine love that's shown in brotherly affection. He says in verse 9, let love be genuine. Love is the very first word in verse 9. And we wonder if it means love to God or love to others or perhaps both. It probably refers to a subset of love in general, a kind of love that is unique for a Christian person. It's a love that a Christian is specifically called to. The love of a Christian towards both God and others is to be sincere, which means this. Love that a Christian is called to is a love that is not two-faced. A love that is not self-serving. We, we know what this is like. Loving someone, not simply because that is what we do as Christians, not as an outworking of a converted heart, but loving someone for what that someone can give to us. And indeed, this is mostly subtle, but it's there. And Paul says that our love is a sincere love, a love as servants of the Lord, A love that must never be a sneaky way to inflate ourselves or benefit ourselves. Paul probably means exactly this when he says to Timothy that the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 1 Timothy 1.5 And then Paul goes on by saying that this love is joined to the good and it hates what is evil. This is sincere love that is turned into action. But then finally, this this genuine love is actually made public. The inside of the Christian life, uh, cultivating by God's grace, a love that is different than the love of the world. This inside of the Christian life is made explicit. How? 
by founding a new ministry overseas, by evangelizing the the thorniest uh, atheists? No. It's a love (laughs) that is shown forth in brotherly affection. The Christian life is made explicit in our affection to saints in the church. Paul's going to use the word saints later. Peter also joins sincere love with brotherly affection when he says, we have purified our souls by our obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. And Peter says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. You know, in fact, in Describing this brotherly affection, Paul says to do it almost competitively. When we think of uh, being competitive, we think of a competitiveness when there are real uh, stakes to be won. There's a, a trophy to be had. A board game can be won. A card game can be won. But Paul, he describes this almost competitive nature of a love that is sincere and a love that is filled with brotherly affection. And so we read at the very end of verse 10, he says uh, that we are to love in such a way that as far as honor is concerned, we're outdoing one another. Let each one esteem the other more highly than oneself. That's how one commentator reads the end of verse 10. So love for fellow Christians, it ought to be done like Romans 12, 3, the kind of love that is not thinking too highly of ourselves. And I want you to see something here in these two verses. Paul says, let love be genuine or sincere. That's what opens verse 9. And then what opens verse 10 is brotherly affection. We could boil these two verses down to two words, uh, love and brotherly affection. Do you remember how he describes zeal? The zealous person is someone who uh, responds quickly. Someone whose thoughts turn quickly to actions. And Christians have the kind of love that quickly, almost instinctively, and ought to grow uh, over time. Christians have the kind of love that loves what is good, hates what is bad, overflows with affection for brothers and sisters. and, And that happens quickly. We... Desire so many things as human beings. And as Christian people, we often have the same kinds of desires as our non-Christian friends and family members. But that ought not be. I want you to hear carefully how Paul describes zeal. The kind of zeal in which the sincere love that we have for God and for others is the kind of love that quickly leaps to action. And so immediately... My heart overflows with affection for my brother and my sister in the life of the church. I don't think about it. I don't think of being patient with them. I don't think of loving them. I don't think of giving of myself to them. I quickly do it because my love is sincere. That's the kind of zeal that a Christian should desire. But that same dynamic of something that is happening inside of us quickly becoming something that happens outside of us is present in verses 12 through 13. Hope that is shown in meeting the needs of others. Remember how common that sounds. The first word in the Greek for verse 12 is hope. And the first word in the Greek for verse 13 is needs. Needs, as in the needs of the saints. And so for a zealous person... 
Just like love quickly turns into brotherly affection, hope, it quickly turns into meeting the needs of the saints. Paul says in verse 12, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. And each of these, we should know, are related to one another. We know that the object of a Christian's hope is someone, not me, but someone who is more highly exalted than myself. Someone who ought to be more highly exalted than myself. That's a Christian's hope. It's God's work, God's plan, God's story of redemption happening right now and will be brought to consummation. The one who does that is the object of the Christian's hope, and so the Christian rejoices in that hope. Only a Christian who understands themselves as a servant of the Lord can truly have hope. The Master cares for all of our needs, all of our needs. But that same hope easily connects to patience in tribulation. Paul has said as recently as Romans 8 that no tribulation, no distress, no persecution, no famine or nakedness or danger or sword will what? Separate us from God's love for us in Christ. There is our hope. And only because of that hope can we be patient in tribulation. And then this patience is, of course, related to prayer. We are so desperate that even in a secure hope, We need patience and a constant turning to God in prayer. We need him moment by moment. Now, just look how naturally Paul moves from these qualities of an inner disposition to very outward expressions of rejoicing in hope. He says that those who rejoice in hope, if they're zealous... They contribute, they literally share, quinineo, what they, what they do have with others in the church body. Those who were called brothers earlier, now they're called saints. But it's the same body of people. And that rejoicing in hope actually spins out in our lives as a desire to share what we have with others. Only because we know of what we have in God are we able to unclench our icy fists from those things that we have that we might contribute to the needs of the saints. And for those same individuals, and it seems like a few more, we're called to be hospitable. This is the first part of the passage that it seems to me Paul is reaching out beyond the bounds of the church body, out into the world. And just as brotherly affection is love for our brothers and sisters in the life of the church, so too is hospitality literally a love for strangers. These two words, brotherly affection and love for strangers, sound so similar. But that quality of rejoicing and hope ought to be the quality that informs us in our love for strangers. And so just as our zeal shows itself in verses 9 and 10 through a sincere love expressed in brotherly affection, so too does our zeal show itself in verses 12 through 13 as a rejoicing in hope that is expressed in meeting the needs of others. Again, let me be so clear. All of this sounds simple. I know that it does. All of this sounds simple. But none of this is possible without God's grace. And In that grace, God himself enables us to present our lives in such a way that we're not slothful, but zealous. These inner qualities of sincere love and rejoicing in hope in God the Father ought to, over time, 
flow into an increased affection for others and an increased willingness to share in the needs of others. These are clear, brothers and sisters, applications of this text. But we ought to ask how, and that's where I want to finish. The applications are there. They they shine uh, before us in verse 10 and verse 13. But how can this happen? I think there's a couple of things that need to be said before we close in prayer. I've argued that sanctifying grace is critical. Paul argues that sanctifying beyond converting grace is critical. But I want to remind you, my brother and sister, that no greater love has come to you, no more sincere love has come to you, no more genuine love has come to you than the love that God has for you in Christ Jesus, His Son, our Savior. And as I said earlier in our service, that is no two-faced love. That is no love that is there merely to serve the needs of God. The love that God has for us is a love that doesn't ignore our filthiness. But it's a love that pays for that filthiness. That is a sincere love. And, and as Christians, we're recipients of that love. And perhaps it may be that a reminder of that great love is exactly what you need to hear to loosen you up so that you begin to show affection for your brothers and sisters in the life of the church. Be reminded of the kind of love you have in Christ Jesus. That's the first thing. But the second is similar to it. I want to remind you, Christian, that the God that you place your hope in, the God that you not merely place your hope in, but the God you rejoice in, well, he's not only faithful to provide for you now, he has provided for you in the past, and he is providing for you in the present, and he will provide for you for all eternity This is a God who has provided for you in such a way that he has rescued your very soul for all eternity. Your daily provision of money and food and uh, home and employment. Is that your hope? Yes, of course it is at times. At times that's your hope and that's my hope. But that cannot be the permanent place of your hope. That cannot be your rejoicing in hope. God, he is your hope. And it's not a possibility. It is a secured hope, secured by the blood of Jesus and the eternal life of Jesus. He himself is the security of your hope. And if that's the case, do you think that a a proper reminder of that hope is the kind of reminder that helps you uh, release those tendrils that have wound so tightly around your possessions that you might be able to share in the needs of your brothers and sisters in the church? A reminder of that hope, might that be the kind of hope that again loosens those tendrils over your possessions and even your expectations that you might be hospitably inclined to those who are outside the church. Love for strangers. And you see what Paul is doing and he's going to do it next week. Paul is reminding us of who we are in Christ and then he tells us to live accordingly. Christian, this is who you are. And we've looked in this passage to find out who we're called to be as we present our lives as living sacrifices before our wonderful and holy God. Would you please pray with me? Father, we would ask that these two realities would be present in our lives. The 
the reality of brotherly affection, loving your people in the church sincerely and carefully. We pray also, Father, that the uh, uh, desire to uh, serve the needs of others in the life of the church would also be present in our lives. We ask that these things would grow more and more through your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.